Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. We are back this week. Laura, how are you doing? I'm doing good and welcome back to Ivy League Murders. We want to welcome everyone back for another week and thank everyone for supporting us. That's right. And if you feel so inclined, please buy us a coffee. It's called Buy Me a Coffee and you can find it on all of our platforms. We've got a few anonymous supporters this week we want to thank. That's right. So this week we have our episode is called I'll Take Care of You. And this is centered around the murder of Bill McLaughlin. So at 55, Bill McLaughlin was a self-made man and an inventor. His invention replaced a cumbersome method of separating plasma from blood cells, and Bill made a fortune. He had an enviable lifestyle. He would fly from his Newport, California home to his house in Las Vegas in his private Malibu Piper jet. He had three beautiful kids, but Bill's marriage had broken up in 1990 and he was lonely for companionship and that loneliness made him vulnerable. In 1991, he responded to a suggestive personal ad looking for, quote, a generous man with a promise of, quote, I'll take care of you if you take care of me. That's how he met Nanette Johnston, half his age. Bill had no idea what he was getting himself into. And this week on Ivy League Murders, we are so honored to have Caitlin Rother, the author of I'll Take Care of You, one of 14 true crime books that she has written. Welcome, Caitlin. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. So can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to the story of Bill and Nanette? Well, you know, when you're a, a beat reporter on the newspaper, which is how I learned my trade, you get sources, sources who trust you, sources who think you did a good job. So I was in the middle of actually writing a previous book called Dead Reckoning, which also took place in Newport Beach. It was the case you might have heard about where this couple had a yacht they were trying to sell and a young guy posing as yeah. a child actor who'd made all this money came and said, oh, I want to buy your boat. Anyway, the same group of detectives, the same prosecutor did both cases. So I was still working on that case and that book when the the lead detective said, hey, I've got to go serve this arrest warrant on this woman. It's this really great case. And so I was in actually as they were arresting these guys. Wow. And I was talking to the detectives as it was happening. So and they trusted me because I'd already done this huge, long investigative sequence of tons and tons of audio files and documents and investigative reports. And I'd sat through three trials. So they knew me really well already. So I got in on the ground floor on this case. And I loved the detective because he was so great. He's Detective Dave Byington, and he's gorgeous and talented and funny and smart. And um, 
anyway, so he's kind of starring, and so is Matt Murphy, you know, and he's in, in both of these books, in both of these cases, which Love both of which him. they were successful at prosecuting and convicting and sending these people to prison. <laughs> so both of these cases took place in Newport. I think most people know about Newport, but can you kind of paint us a little bit of a picture of Newport, California? And Actually, this is one of the parts of the book that I think is kind of a fun thing. Just kind of read, if you don't mind. I'll just read a couple paragraphs. Back in 1994, the city of Newport Beach, which people also call just Newport, had about 66,000 residents. So when this book came out in 2012, it had grown to about 87,000 residents. And this is a place where people who have money, who like to sail, who like to be on the water, like to dress nicely, have beautiful homes, have boats docked outside their houses, etc. They like to live. In fact, Nicholas Cage was in the news because he had a boat dock that he expanded to 156 feet to accommodate his personal flotilla, and he later <laughs> sold his home for a record $35 million. Also, Bill McLaughlin owned two homes in Newport, one where the murder occurred and one where Nanette used to take her lovers. And sometimes she would sleep with men in the house where Bill lived when he was gone to Las Vegas. But Kobe Bryant lived down the street. I think Dennis Rodman. So you have beautiful homes, which are clean, white, beige, pastel facades on the waterfront, pristine landscaping, private docks. There's also the people who are like Nanette, who don't have any money and are the wannabes and the pretend people. And that was kind of what happened in the, the other book as well. You have people coming in from Long Beach who don't have their own money, live in a cramped garage, and they want other people's money. So they pose. They're posers. They're con men and con women. And they come to Newport Beach to try to get a chunk of somebody else's money. And that's exactly what happened in this case. And it's happened in the other case as well. So Bill McLaughlin himself, though, came from pretty modest means. And what did your research about McLaughlin reveal? Well, he grew up in the Chicago area. And as you said, from pretty humble beginnings, he really didn't have much money at all. And he worked his way through. In fact, later when he did make his money, he remembered that and he set up a scholarship to help young people, students get through college. He was also pretty religious. So he, you know, went to church and in fact, they had some kind of meeting with a priest in the kitchen sometimes. So his family, he also taught them, his daughters and his son, you know, to share their wealth and be good to other people. But he knew early on that he wanted to make a lot of money and he had a goal to become a millionaire by the time he was 30. And he was smart and he was ambitious. And so he studied hard and he made money. It's kind of hard to say, but I there was a very complicated lawsuit that was going on um, for years with a former business partner. And Bill eventually, from what I can tell, won and had some money coming to him, which factors into this case. But there were some people who didn't like the way he operated, this business partner in particular. That's why they were tied up in court for so long. One of Bill's family members told me that he also drank a lot and that he changed his personality over time that he didn't treat his first wife that well, was very controlling, and especially with money, especially during the divorce and afterwards. And so there were two sides to Bill. He was a loving father and his children loved him and Nanette's children loved him. And he was generous to her and her kids. But according to this family member, she thinks maybe he felt a little guilty about how he treated his first wife. So His first wife left him. 
They, mm-hmm. they divorced in 1990, from what I understood. And then he sort of seems to fall into a bit of a sugar trap or a honey trap with Nanette Johnston. Laura and I were talking about this before the episode and sort of talking about the whole sort of sugar kind of relationship, meaning sugar, meaning that typically a younger woman with an older richer guy kind of right yeah i think that's definitely in play here but nanette is not your typical woman (laughs) i mean i don't i she had so much going on she was a major major con woman i mean she had everything going on that you could think of that lured him okay so but the thing that's ironic and sad about this case nobody deserves to be taken the way that bill was but bill went into this with a personal ad that said i'll take care of you if you take care of me and that's why the book is called i'll take care of you right it came right out of the personal ad that nanette was not hiding what she wanted and the police found this red teddy and the vibrator and she apparently always had the vibrator and many other toys and she had a giant picture that was nude of herself in the other house. So she was very sexual. And based on the people that I interviewed, the other men that she had been with, she was very sexual and very manipulative. And the other thing that she did was she she was different from his first wife, first of all, because she was obviously so much younger, but because she was so interested in his business and the first wife apparently really wasn't. He really liked that about her, that she was smart, they could talk. But what he didn't realize was that she was pumping him for information and learning his business so that she could embezzle money from him. Right. And so that's what was sad. But so it's kind of hard to know. Some people, his brother thinks that maybe he figured out what she was doing at the very end, because when he talked to him, I think it was the night before he was found dead, there was something in his voice. He thought someone was out to get him, but he didn't give any details. So there is a theory that he figured out that she was taking money from him and didn't know what to do about it yet, or had a, you know, was thinking about what to do, or maybe he didn't, maybe he thought it was something else. I don't know what else could have been going on, but there was a lot of money on the table with this business, former business partner and and this massive, just nagging litigation that had been going on and and pretty stressful for, for years. And he had lost his ability to be liquid and there was a lot of stuff going on. So when he winds up dead, do the police immediately suspect her? Where do the police immediately, where do they first go? So let me just preface my comments with, this was a super complicated investigation, a super complicated case. And it went on for a long time because there were some internal politics at the police department. There was a brand new prosecutor in Mm -hmm. the DA's office who was a woman and everybody else who was working on the case at the police department was a man. And I tracked her down and got her to talk to me about what happened. And so long story short, she felt like the men in the police department were not listening to her and did not take her seriously, did not want her help, did not want her suggestions. So they were kind of following a certain path and she wanted them to go in a different path. They ultimately split the case into a financial case and the homicide case, which she thought was a mistake. So it's kind of hard to unravel at this point because cold case investigator came in, you know, 15 years later and then presented the case, went through all the same evidence again. So it gets a little confusing trying to figure out what was figured out in the second investigation and what was 
the theory in the first investigation. But from what I can tell, you know, they initially were wondering if maybe the son could have been involved because he was in the house at the time that the shots were fired. He's the one who called 911. He's the one who found his father lying on the kitchen floor bleeding. But they also thought that the former business associate with all this litigation was also a suspect. But as it turned out, you know, they, the detectives went up and investigated and interviewed him and he had an alibi. He was in Santa Barbara. He had an alibi. So they didn't know specifically, they didn't have any other theories until they started investigating. And this case took a long time to kind of unravel, like I said. What happened that I was recalling as I was going through this again, uh, Nanette's little boy at the funeral said to one of Bill's family members, mommy's boyfriend plays football. And so they started watching this other house where Nanette was spending time, Bill's other house, which he apparently left to her in his will too. And they noticed this big muscular guy showing up. And so they started following him and that's Eric Naposky. So Eric Naposky became a suspect after this little boy said that. But up until that point, I don't know that they knew exactly what might have happened. And just to back up a little bit. So the night of the murder, Bill's son, Kevin, my understanding is Bill's son, Kevin, is upstairs. Right. And Bill is shot six times in his kitchen. One of the more heartbreaking parts to me about this case is listening to the 911. I know. It's so sad. Of his son, Kevin, trying. He has a brain injury from having been hit by a drunk driver, trying to articulate to the police that his father is dying downstairs. I can understand the 911 confusion because it's he's very hard to understand. In terms of pure evidence at that point, and I know this is 1994 and DNA is kind of on the cusp of being used in criminal investigations. There wasn't a whole lot of evidence, though. Is that correct, Kayla? I think the main evidence that they had at the time were the bullet casings, and the bullets, and the fact that there was a key left in the front door, stuck in the lock, and a key on the doorstep, on the mat. So back then, ballistics, so it wasn't so much DNA, it was there because they didn't, I don't think they found any DNA that I remember anyway at the time. But the ballistics, you know, that was a clue that they had access to it at the time. However, again, technology was an issue because at the time, I think it was something like there were like 27 possibilities of what kind of gun it could have been. Whereas when the case was prosecuted, technology had changed and they were able to narrow it down to one or a handful of guns. So that was something that improved over time. The other thing was these keys. That was a very important clue because there were only a limited number of these keys. This was a gated community. I believe the key on the doormat was the one that went to the gate to the community. It was like a pedestrian gate. You could go in and out and there's a layer was like a bike path. You would open up the gate and get outside the community. They also thought later that maybe Eric had like not let the door closed or had propped it open so that he could quickly get in and out because that key on the doormat you had to use to get in and out. And they also found that he had gotten a job very recently. If you go out that gate, take the path, go up to where the bridge is, cross the bridge and down around, there was a bar over there, which he could run to within like three minutes. So, and that's 
where he worked. And that's where he was that night. So over time, they started putting these things together. But so the keys were very important because Nanette, for example, did not have any keys on her keychain. They were mysteriously missing. There was a set of keys that were supposed to have been mailed to one of Bill's friends who was going to stay there. He never got them in the mail. So anyway, they were missing keys and the keys that were found in the door, stuck in the door and on the doormat looked brand new, like if somebody had just made copies. And you weren't supposed to make copies of one of these keys because they were only supposed to be um, limited per household. So they weren't even supposed to be doing that. One of the detectives actually tracked down the place where the keys were made. Eric had recently made keys that looked just like these. And he'd also asked the guy to make him a fake silencer for a gun that he said he no longer had. And anyway, over time, they were able to piece this stuff together. However, and there is some debate over this when I was doing my research, but according to the prosecutor, she was never presented with all this evidence enough to make a case. The detective said he presented the case. She said there wasn't enough. So who knows? But the case was not made and partly because it was separated. And so when Nanette was being questioned about the financial stuff, which I'm sure we'll go into, but she had been writing checks, forging Bill McLaughlin's name and right before his death had written one for $250,000. And as my favorite detective would say, in our business, that's a clue. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It amazes me that she thought she would get away with that. That was also the evidence. So all of these checks that she had been writing as they, over time with the accountant, the daughters got involved because Nanette had been doing all these, all the accounting and the bookkeeping and was hiding things and wouldn't hand over documents. And so once they started doing some forensic accounting, the checks and the accounting also became part of the evidence against her. And there were other witnesses who later, um, who had come forward earlier, but nobody interviewed them. And anyway, so a neighbor of Eric Naposky's who he had made these wild statements to. So it eventually all came together, but I guess some of that wasn't available at the time where the detectives didn't pursue or someone didn't get a message or, you know, it just, it could have been handled better, I guess, early on, but they eventually got him. So Nanette actually did go on trial for her embezzlement and her fraud activities. I don't believe she went on trial, but she was really, she was really a piece of work. I'm telling you, she <laughs> all this money from yeah. this family and from this man who she said she wanted to have kids with. He bought her this ring, this big ring. And cause she's like, I want to get married. I want to have a child with you, blah, blah, blah. And this was her way of latching onto a rich guy so she could get a piece of his money. And she did that two more times. Latch onto somebody with money, then get married to them and then have a child with them. So she had an interest in his financial accounts. She was very demanding. She had these crazy spending habits. She had to be going out all the time. She had dresses that she'd never even wore that were still hanging in her closet with the tags on them. I've seen pictures where she, every time you see her, she's wearing a different dress and these are not deep dresses. But she did do jail time for the embezzlement. She did. She did a jail time, but I think there was a deal that was made because where I was going to with that is she actually countersued and said that she was due all this money 
because Bill had left her this money in his will, and she was supposed to get this car, she was supposed to get the house, she was supposed to get this and that, she was supposed to be a trustee, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so she ended up negotiating, and they put it all together. So there was criminal, there was some kind of attorney meeting where they hammered this out and she made some kind of plea deal and the murder was off the table. This was just the financial stuff. Mm -hmm. And so she did serve, I think, six months in jail, but nothing to do with the murder because they couldn't get her to admit to anything and she wouldn't talk. They thought that we could use this as leverage, but she was like, no. <laughs> but they also had to pay her, I think, 225 I know. And then they had to pay her more money, which <laughs> she just, oh, her, the daughters so. were furious about because that, which she, you can't blame them, right? I mean... I think it was a palimony suit. She exactly. Thought. Yes. She really had a lot of gall. She learned. See, this is the thing about Bill. Like Bill was happy to include her. He's happy to have her on his arm when he went to these business lunches. They got involved in these real estate development deals. He was involved in, they were looking for houses. They were building something out in the desert. He was flying. He had his own private plane. He would fly to Las Vegas for a couple, three days a week because he was trying to establish residency because in Nevada, there was no income tax. And so he could save a bunch of money. So she was learning things from him and she was sucking his brain essentially on how to make money and how to steal his money. And he trusted her to write checks on his account, but she was going way beyond that. She was going out to the gym, meeting these younger guys and pretending basically to be him. She would basically take the accomplishments that he had done and the successes that he had made, and she would take credit for them and tell people this whole life story and created this whole new identity for herself, spending his money on these guys so that they would think that she was this big cheese, you know? And she had all this cosmetic surgery and she just was trying to be this other person. That this rich, wealthy, beautiful person. I mean, if you saw pictures of her from when she was younger, you wouldn't even recognize her. And she, in fact, wouldn't even let her third husband see any pictures of herself from when she was younger because she looked so different. She didn't want him to know. And I wonder, I mean, it just seems, I, my theory is that he probably was on to her because it seems like she had a pretty good deal going with Bill. I mean, she was kind of had her cake and was eating it too. I mean, he was giving her a lot of freedom to spend money and to see other men. No, he did not know anything about I mean, the I other know, men. No, I know he didn't know, but I'm just saying she was doing, she was really kind of doing whatever she wanted, wasn't she? I don't think he knew about the men. No, yeah. I, and I'm not sure if he even figured out the money, but if he did start to get some kind of feeling about the money, I guarantee you he didn't know the, the extent of it. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, think about it. He didn't seem to have a problem, you know, asserting himself with anybody. I would have kicked her out if I had known, if I were him, you know. So I'm not sure yeah. that he, if he did suspect, maybe he was just starting. Because that's, right. you know, you don't want to be thinking, oh, God, this person's been taking advantage of me this whole time. And all this time we've been having sex, she really wasn't as into it as I thought she was. And, oh, she's had all these men on the side. I guarantee you, because she hid it from him. She had sex with these other men while he was gone. Mm -hmm. But you would think that somebody would have noticed and told him, but nobody did. But I find it interesting that the night of his murder, she is at this uh, you know, sports, <laughs> yeah. sports event of one of uh -huh. her sons with Eric Naposky. She knew that Bill would never come to those games. So she felt safe doing that. 
because he had already, he'd already told her, I don't want to come to these games with your boy because I've already done that with my kids. So she knew that was a safe place. Just in terms of planning this murder, I think it's so like blatant and frontal for them to go to this game together. And obviously the kids tell about this football boyfriend of hers and everything like that. It it just seems to me like the, both of them are putting themselves in the spotlight. I think they did that on purpose to help create the alibi mm-hmm. because they wanted to be seen at a certain place at a certain time, then tell the ex-husband Eric's got a meeting at eight o'clock that he has to go to. So that would then plant the seed that he was going to be someplace else and had an alibi too. And then they purposely planned it so that there was documented written proof. So she dropped him off and then she went to the mall, right? So she could have a receipt that had a timestamp on it that she wasn't at the house. And then he called the, uh, or supposedly called his, the nightclub on a payphone someplace that was also supposedly set up to be part of an alibi, which of course turned out to be a huge issue during the trial because those receipts were lost and if they ever existed. (laughs) And I think when Eric is questioned by the police, because Mm -hmm. I think quickly the police get to Eric, he is so dishonest with them and not upfront with them, right? They arrest him on the pretext of a traffic ticket and he lies about the gun. He, you know, he lies about the nature of his relationship with Nanette. Okay. So Nanette is a piece of work and Eric Naposky is a whole other piece of work. So I spent seven hours interviewing him over the course of two different days in jail. This guy is pretty charming and he charmed the jail guards to give us more time. And we, you know, normally I would get cut off. The first one we were on the cold metal stool holding on to this receiver in the jail and he's on the other side of the glass, right? And so we were talking and I'm trying to write and hold the phone and look at him. And he ended up getting more time even in that situation. I've I've interviewed people at that same jail before. They cut you off. There's a visiting hour. He managed to somehow get it extended. And then the next time we met for like five hours and it was all prearranged and the jail let me do it. And he somehow, oh, they said I can go longer. And I'm like, because, you know, they're all like, oh, an NFL guy. This is so cool. He's such a good guy. Right. But he would not let me say anything. Eric, Eric, Eric. It was all about Eric and Eric's story. And I'm like, dude, can I ask a question? (laughs) And so the second time I said, you need to let me ask some questions. I'm not going to just sit here and let you just talk. So, but I did let him talk. That's one of the things that I do when I interview these killers, you have to let them feel like you're at least, you know, open to hearing what they have to say, because if you start asking them confrontational questions, they're not going to tell you anything. They're just going to shut down and say goodbye. So it's one of the strategies is to just let them talk about themselves. But Eric, I haven't had an interview like that with anyone else. And he's saying to me, that's, I mean, it was like, he was really putting it on. He was really trying to, to charm and impress me with what a great guy he was and how he didn't do it, how he didn't do it. It was a hitman. Yeah. So he's still, he's still claiming a hundred percent innocent. Yeah. I mean, I saw a, a long story. I think you guys posted it on your page too. I had read it before and I was really irritated with it because it mentioned some 48 hours episode on the case and never mentioned my book when I think it was pretty clear that this guy had read my book because it was a very long story and I don't know where else he would have gotten all the information because that stuff's not just available. It's like, mm-hmm. you've got to go to the courthouse and go through the boxes of exhibits and stuff. So anyway, 
he's still claiming this hitman story. He's still handing out these same packet of Nanette's cell phone bills where he's saying she's making calls and making deposits to this person. And it was clear that that guy just didn't have anything to do with this or know anything about it. And the investigator, the cold case investigator who came in and put this case together was like, no. So nobody, nobody bought it. And the fact is he waited until after he was convicted to come up with this theory, you know, that he put out. His attorneys didn't pursue it. They knew about it when they just didn't pan out. They, they told me. 1994 is when the murder of Bill McLaughlin happens. And then right. it takes about 15 years. And we've right. talked about this before for them to put this case together. Do you think Matt Murphy, the prosecutor, was kind of like the secret sauce to get this all put together and put this case together and push it forward? Or? No, I actually think that Larry Montgomery, the cold case investigator, was really the okay. secret sauce um, okay. because he's a talented guy. He's very detail oriented. He's a really good guy too. You know, he's not trying to, he, he repeated this to me a number of times, almost like a mantra. Is this how an innocent person would act? And so mm -hmm. he's also looking for holes in their case so they don't prosecute the wrong person, which I find refreshing because there are other cases that I've looked at where they just have confirmation bias and they just are heading down a certain road and they don't seem to get veered off by anything because they've convinced themselves that they're going after the right person with even in ignoring other evidence. But Larry's a really good guy. But I mean, I'm not discounting Matt. I'm Matt took care of it in the courtroom and before that, and he is the one who works with Larry, but it was kind of a combination too. The female prosecutor that I mentioned, she also never let go of this case either. So she wanted to see Nanette go down and thought that she and Eric were behind this. And she's the one who kept bringing it up. And so I think she's the one who actually presented it to Matt and I'm not sure if she independently also can't remember if he she also independently mentioned it to Larry Montgomery. But I think together, keeping it going and the family too. the daughters would call periodically to check in. Are you guys still pursuing this? Because, you know, it was cold for a long time and they didn't feel well, they didn't have any case. <laughs> I mean, they didn't weren't pursuing anything kind of just sat on a shelf. Yeah. So do you think Nanette and Eric just thought they got away with it? She yeah, she got away with yeah. it and then yeah. moved on with her life. I mean, yep. like you said, she married two more times. She with, had two with, more children with the exact same MO right. going so after. Yeah. The next wealthy. husband was also wealthy. And I don't think it's any coincidence that even after Nanette was put in prison for this case, he went down and was indicted for some kind of, can't remember if it was a Ponzi scheme or, but it was something to defraud people who were buying properties. And so he wasn't a good guy either. But the, the last guy that she married um, and had a child with, he helped me out. He gave, you know, let me use some pictures and he just seemed like a really good guy. And I felt bad for him because he wasn't a criminal. <laughs> he wasn't doing anything right. wrong. He didn't know who she really was. Yes. He yeah. thought she was, you know, they're holding Bible study groups in her in their living room, but she did have a stripper pole in the bedroom. So there were some things that still had not changed. Bible study, pole dancing, you know, of course. He you just know, thought she was like, edgy, maybe. It's like peanut butter and jelly, yeah. right? Well, you know, that's something about um, uh, Orange County. I, I like to call this case the Real Housewives of Orange County Gone Bad. 
<laughs> yeah. Because that's the kind of person Nanette is. She's one of those women who has to have, you know, she had her hair straightened. She had her hair dyed. She had breast implants, which she pretended were real, like even to her own husband and lied to him about it to the extent was she just really didn't want to be who she was. She wanted to fit this picture that she had. You know, one of the most fun parts of the research for me in this case, Detective Voff, uh, who was the very first detective, the lead detective who was on this case, he'd never done a homicide before. He was, you know, very eager guy and tried his best, but he just either didn't have enough supervision or he just didn't really know enough what to do. But really, you know, he did his best. He cooperated with me, shared all his files with me. And what I found in there was a resume from Nanette from back to, I forget, going all the way back to like 1990. I can't remember. Anyway, way before she met Bill. And so it was full of lies. I just went through it and I started calling people and I found how she had become this person. And I interviewed some of the men that she had been with. There were investigative reports where the police interviewed them. But I have one other little section that I just kind of wanted to read, which sort of tells you this guy Reynolds, Tom Reynolds. Okay. So he's a six foot tall. He was 28 years old. He was a bouncer at the Red Onion in Santa Ana. And she showed up one night and started chatting him up at the door. So he's buying her drinks, which isn't really buying because he's the bouncer and he gets free drinks. So he's like plying her with drinks and she's talking to him and she ends up going home with him that night. And he's pretty happy about that. You know, she's in the middle of a custody case. She says she feels worried she's going to lose her kids. Well, where are your kids? Nobody asked that because Tom's too much thinking about going home with this woman, but then she never left. Right. So she basically moves in with him. What he doesn't know is that she had been evicted. She had no place to go. So she goes to that bar looking for someone to hook up with so that she can find another sugar daddy, even though he really didn't even have any money. So there was no courtship and no dating. Nanette just never left. What started as a one-night stand spread straight into a hot and heavy sexual tryst, followed by a relatively quick decision to move in together at her new place, a two-bedroom duplex that had just been remodeled out of a two-story home. Because it was unfurnished and she had no job, Nanette expected Reynolds to pay the move-in expenses and buy all new furniture. Within the next several months, Reynolds' life and his relationship with Nanette would take a short trip to hell, putting him $91,000 in debt with a domestic violence arrest on his record and a bankruptcy filing to boost. So this is the wreckage that this woman can cause in just a matter of months <laughs> by using her sexual abilities and her manipulative ways and her scheming, conniving, lying, cheating ways. You know, this is one thing on Ivy League murders that we have a real fascination with. And that's, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I happen to be doing some reading on narcissistic personality disorder. Oh, yeah. Night, just for fun. And, and it seems like Nanette kind of hits a lot of those bullet points. Yeah. You know? And um, I think so does Eric. You know, narcissists attract each other too. And so they find their value in hooking up with someone that they find to be attractive, which mm -hmm. helps them feel attractive. Right. So I could go into politics right now, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so much of our podcast is, is just about the pursuit of power and money. And right. 
and what people are willing to sacrifice for that. Right. And then that seems like the ultimate in that. It just seems like more was never enough for her. You know, I feel yeah. like it's like sex and greed. But yeah. you insatiable. Know, kind of insatiable. As a- I, yes. I Like I said, I think I was never able to get to the bottom of this to the extent that I would have liked to, but her third husband, Bill, told me about as much as I could have gotten because she did not open up to her attorney at all. And because this was not a death penalty case, he didn't really ask about her social history. But from what I could get from Bill, he met her family. And like I said, she lied about even getting breast implants. She had some kind of sticker that she had in her closet that she even took off the wall and brought with her to the next house and stuck it on her closet. It said, they're real, her breasts, you know. So anyway, she was not that attractive when she was young. She was very athletic. So she was flat chested and had this crazy frizzy brown hair. She's Indian from India, Indian. Her father came over on a boat and met the mom, I think in the Chicago area. And so they broke up and I don't know all the details, but from what I can kind of gather, mom ended up with some abusive stepfather figure who did not treat her well and the kids well. And Nanette apparently had some kind of burn on her butt that Tom Reynolds asked her about. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, that was from a cigarette. So I'm not sure, but apparently he had a temper. So, I mean, clearly she's got some serious issues. And I think they probably came from whatever was going on in the house when she was growing up. It's possible that she was molested because she was hypersexual in such a way that would lead you to believe that she had been traumatized in some way. But she just, like you said, it was like this insatiable pit. Like she just couldn't ever get enough of like the money she was trying to make herself feel worthy or of value or it Mm. it just was sad in a way, but you can't feel sad for her because she'd used so many people and hurt people. And here's the thing, Eric Naposky, she told Eric Naposky that Bill McLaughlin was her boss, like a father figure and a mentor, and that they were living together only because he wanted her in the house so that she could take care of his business. And then she told Eric, that he raped her, like physically with a gun, not like held it on her, like to do stuff, but literally raped her using a gun and got him upset because he was planning to ask Nanette to marry him. Because when she was around Eric or when she went to the gym, she would take off the big ring that Bill gave her so that nobody knew she was engaged to him. And even Bill told his son and told his brother that hard to say whether it was really joking or not, that he was not really planning to marry her, that it was more of just kind of get her off his back. So it's unclear, but she wanted, she wanted access to that money somehow. She thought she would get more access to money. There was this $9 million that was going to be coming in from the litigation. There was, you know, life insurance, there's all kinds of stuff. She thought she was going to be working as the trustee to the estate, get a monthly fee for doing that. Plus, still having access to these accounts that she had been writing hundreds and thousands of dollars to to herself, transferring it to some other accounts that were going through another account to her account that she didn't think anybody was going to find. Nanette, I think, also says, why would I kill Bill? He was more valuable to me alive than dead. I don't believe her. I don't believe that that's true. I think she thought she was going to get it and get him out of the way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And get to go be with this big, huge athletic macho guy who That's was right. more her age. But I don't think she planned a future with Eric Naposki either because he didn't have any money. She wanted someone like the next guy she got. Right. Packard, whatever his first name was, who I said was indicted for. <laughs> Did she ever reach out to you? No, she refused to talk to me. Her family wouldn't talk to me. I sat next to her daughter and her husband in court and tried to, I told them what I was doing. Cause I always do this. Every time I write a book, I go to all the victims. I go to all the defendants, families. I don't take sides. I'm just telling the story. Her family lost her just like the victim's family lost someone. That's the family still. Right. Erica possibly had a fiance. They had already sent out wedding invitations and she was in the courtroom and she didn't know who Eric was either any more than Nanette's husband knew who she was. And because this is 15 years later, a couple marriages later, and they didn't sign up for that. They didn't know that these people who they were with sure. just didn't know. And you know, what's funny. I have a Google alert for Eric Naposky and it, his son is named Eric Naposky and he's a really great athlete, just like his dad. And I keep getting these Google alerts <laughs> that he's no winning this award or is on this team and is doing this stuff. So his, his son is just as athletic yeah. as he was and seems to be doing really well. And, um, apparently Eric got moved to a prison that's closer to where his son was going to school. So I guess they're in touch, but he's got his family believing that it was a hitman. Right. They were scared to talk to me because they were worried this hitman was going to come and get them. Wow. And they're in Connecticut, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. He actually had played for the New England Patriots at one point. Right. I mean, the thing about Eric was he played a total of five games for several different teams. He just could not stop getting injured. So he was never really an NFL football player for longer than a couple minutes at a time, you know? So he had this pesky groin muscle that he kept pulling and he kept twisting his ankles. And the latest thing that he's saying is, well, you know, What's that football concussion, CTE? Is that oh, the traumatic brain injury, yeah. yeah. Oh, so maybe that had something to do with you know, what was going on. And maybe that's why yeah. I said this or don't remember this. And uh, I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he probably would have been better off just saying that he did it out of rage because of thinking that his fiance was had been raped. But then he'd be admitting that he did it. Right. That's Which true. he still to this day has never done. Oh, no, I was never there. Even though he had this notebook journal in his car, which had Bill McLaughlin's license right. plate number on it. And this car was always kept inside in the garage. And, and yeah. he also told this woman that he was friends with in his apartment complex that he was going to have the guy blown up. Oh, Suzanne. Yeah. Yeah. Suzanne Kogard. I mean, and she's like, ooh. So he kind of admitted that he killed him to her. But he passes that off as like, oh, I was just joking around. Like, I'm going to kill that guy. I've heard that kind of stuff. Well, here's another thing that got him was this police training that he went through because he knew he was a bouncer. He had a gun. He went through some kind of training and helped the police do training with the police. So he was in on this training session and they taught them the double tap. So, you know, you hold your gun out, you go, poop, poop. You pause to see if you hit the target. Like that. Now, coincidentally, not so coincidentally, someone in the neighborhood heard shots being fired in that pattern. Wow. Huh. That was another very interesting. Yep. Pop, pop. Pause. Pop, pop. Pause. Pop, pop. So the six shots, just like there were six bullets. Makes sense. Yep. Ah, that's interesting. And he had an explosive temper that was documented. 
Which could have been brain injury from being hit by playing football. Could have been steroid use too. Yeah, steroid use as well. Yeah. Caitlin, I have a totally, thank you so much. This oh, you're welcome. It's fun. Wonderful. Um, I have a totally aside question for you. Okay. And this is another thing that we grapple with quite a lot. Why do you think so many women are fascinated with true crime? I think men are too, but there's a particular feel like we are not alone, the three of us right now in being women who are, are fascinated with true crime. What is the draw? I've, I've made a career out of it. So have you. So yeah, I get asked that a lot, actually, um, more so since every time you turn, not so much since COVID, but the channels were constantly full of these crime shows in the last few years. And then there's been an explosion of true crime podcasts also. So I think it's because which has helped normalize the interest in it. I mean, when I first started getting into this stuff, so I was a newspaper reporter for almost 20 years, and I mostly covered government and politics, but I kind of got into the weekend cop shift. And I kind of just, I don't mean for this to sound callous, but it was kind of fun to get into a story that was immediate And when I say fun, I mean challenging as a reporter from a storytelling point of view, because it's life and death, it's dramatic, and you have everybody who has a story to tell. There's a lot of emotion and a lot of drama. It's good versus evil. So as a storyteller, it drew me because I like to put puzzles together, and I like to see how did the investigators build their case, but also what did not come out in court that I, as an investigator, can find and that I think makes a more interesting story because they're trying to win a case in court. They're not going to present a lot of stuff, even if they know it, because it's not going to help them win. For me as a writer, it goes to my basic urge to understand why did this happen? How Mm -hmm. could somebody do this to somebody else? Why would they do something? What happened to them in their past? I don't think men are as interested from that psychological aspect as women are, because I think men are more bottom line oriented. We want to understand. We want to ask questions. And I think sometimes I'll be talking to a man and he'll be like, socially, what's with all the questions? What's, why am I getting the inquisition? And I'm just like, well, I'm just trying to have a conversation. So we're just kind of built differently. We want to know these things, you know, and I think women get really interested in this. And what I found also is that I think people who are drawn to these stories may have also had some trauma in their own lives and that this resonates with them for reasons that they may not even be conscious of because many of the people, and this, the reason this story is, is interesting is because it's a woman who is orchestrating this, but usually it's a man. And so my stories and my publisher, we always try to look for strong female characters because women are the ones who mostly buy these books. (laughs) So women are the readers of these books. They're the ones especially who are interested in true crime, but there are a lot of men who are interested too, but they feel, I think, somewhat embarrassed about that. Like it's something dirty. And so (laughs) when I first started doing this, the women had to hide it and the men pretended they weren't interested. Now the women are more open about being interested and the men are less likely to hide it. But it's still like the fiction, the literary fiction or the literary nonfiction people are still kind of hold their noses about true crime because it's still considered sort of a 
it's not, you know, like a respected genre. It, it, at least that's was how it was when I first started. It's less that way now, thankfully, I'm happy <laughs> to say. But mm-hmm. if you do it really well and you do it really thoroughly and you get to the heart and to the details that the newspapers and the TV reporters never expose, I mean, that's why people like my books as they're super detail-oriented. I go mm-hmm. deep into the research. And I do it because I enjoy it. It certainly is not a money-making scheme by any stretch of the imagination. I just wanted to also put a plug in for your book, I'll Take Care of You. I loved it. I could not put it oh, down. yes. And I, Amazing. Just, you are just a, an incredible true crime writer. Just for thank those- Thank you. Oh, read, thank you. Your sense of Unbelievable. De- detail. You're an excellent writer. You paint the picture for it. It is just- I can't wait to tear through your whole collection. Oh, I have to yes. tell you. So. Well, so, can I just talk a minute about what's coming up? My, yes, please. Yeah, my book, it. Death on Ocean Boulevard, is going to be my next uh, release. And I don't know how that's going to go because of COVID, since I can't, don't think I'm still going to be able to do any in-person events. But people have been waiting for this book for years. This is the case of Rebecca Zahau. The sheriff's department ruled it a suicide Her family, to this day, strongly believes she was murdered, and so do many people in the community. So I have gotten to the bottom of that case. I have the entire investigative file. So I'm basically releasing everything that hasn't come out in trial, hasn't come out. You know, and the sheriff's department basically has been under attack and accused of taking bribes and what have you, and of doing an incompetent and incomplete investigation. So basically, I'm not taking sides. I'm not taking a position. I'm just letting you know. And there are things in this book that I think it's going to be very controversial because I think it's, you know, people want to see a book that says a certain, takes a certain point of view. And I'm, I'm an objective journalist. I am not here to take sides. I have no agenda in to protect or to push. I just am telling everything. And there's some things in there that some people don't want to come out, but I think people will really understand much better what actually happened at that house in Coronado. But so for people who don't know, Rebecca Zahau was found hanging naked, tied up with a gag in her mouth, hands tied behind her back, her ankles tied together with a t-shirt wrapped around her neck and around her mouth like a gag shoved down her mouth. There was a note written in black paint on the door to the room where the rope was tied to a bed. It went over the top of the balcony and she was hanging into the courtyard. She was found by her boyfriend's brother, who was later uh, sued in civil court by her family and accused of wrongful death and being responsible for killing her. And the jury found him responsible. So he still says, absolutely, he was innocent. Her family believes that he did this. And so it's still, that's what the book will be exploring. So it's Death on Ocean Boulevard uh, inside the Coronado Mansion case. That's a fascinating fascinating case. And I'm also in the middle of writing a sequel to my one and only fiction crime novel. All my other books are nonfiction. So this is fiction, which is great considering I have to be at home, stuck here at my table and can't go to the courthouse to go do research. I could, but I don't feel that safe doing it. So until we get a vaccine, I really 
I'm happy to have a project that I can do sitting in my living room. But anyway, it's a sequel to Naked Addiction, which was my first book that I ever wrote. And I revised it and and re-released it in 2014. So it's with the same publisher. And this book is called Dopamine Fix. I'm hoping to have that out next year as well. So it should be fun. It's been really, really a great project. It's keeping me alive during COVID. That's awesome. And so all this stuff, because we've we've shared your link and we'll continue to do so on our web page, on our Facebook page and CaitlinRother.com. So people can stay abreast with all your current projects. Thank you so much for all the promotion. It's just been great. Oh, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep sharing your project Yay. and keep everybody in Ivy League Murders up to date. And so yeah. they can, you know, keep keep reading your stuff. And, and if they have any questions, they can reach out. This has oh. been absolutely fabulous, Caitlin. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Oh, and you're welcome. And so maybe we can do it again because the Rebecca Zahau case is I think right up your alley. It's all, Jonah Shackney was a pharmaceutical magnet, multimillionaire again, living in a historic home in Coronado that was built by John D. Spreckles, the, of the sugar family. They were the richest family in California back in the early 1900s. He basically bought all the property on Coronado Island, and he built two houses, one on either side. So one is on the bay side, one is on the beach side. This one was on the beach side. So this house was built in 1907, where she was found hanging. So excellent. It's right up your alley. That is right up our alley. It is. (laughs) We're going to have to go and visit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, great. Thank you again, Caitlin. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you again for joining us. And that was wonderful talking to Caitlin. I'm really psyched about her new book. I, I That sounds amazing. I am extremely. That's a case I've been kind of obsessed with for a long time. Me too. Me too. Um, so if anyone, I'm not going to give it away so people can actually get the book, but um, I, I really look forward to having Caitlin back. But and- we just wanted to give a really special shout out to one of our listeners in the UK who is so wonderful, put so much content on our Facebook page. And his name is Paul Gibbons. He really, I mean, sometimes he listens to an episode a few times and just gives the most thoughtful responses. It's just wonderful. Just really wonderful. And and I've suggested a few other podcasts to him. Um, He's been listening to to Zach's podcast, Drinks with Great Minds in History. And he's been listening to a few others that I've suggested. And um, he's just, he really, he just gets so into it and into the community on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening again. And as always, please stay safe and stay curious. Murder, murder.